Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys joining us on this Sunday morning. So before we go any further, I just want to publicly thank uh, Adam and Christina for speaking the last two weeks. I thought they did a phenomenal job, and I'm just very grateful that, that we've got so many communicators at this church that do such a good job. And I thought this was interesting. I don't know if you saw this, but like I thought it was very telling that both of them, I don't know if you saw this, that, that both of them quoted from the Disney movie Tangled. Meanwhile, I'm up here quoting from like The Godfather. I, it's a, just different worlds, okay? But this is, why, this is why it's important to have multiple communicators. You just get sort of different perspectives on life. But today we are continuing our summer series that we are calling BC, where we are talking about what happened before it all happened, meaning what happened before Jesus Christ stepped onto the scene, those thousands of years in the Old Testament. And every single week we're taking a look at key figures in the Old Testament. We're finding out about their lives and how their lives impact and influence our own. So today, we are going to be talking about one of the most famous guys in the Old Testament. He has definitely earned his place in the Sunday School Hall of Fame. It is none, no one else but Daniel. Um, if you grew up going to church, if you grew up going to kids' Sunday school or kids' programming or kids' church, you definitely heard the story of Daniel and the lions. And it is a great story, and we definitely want to touch on that story a little bit today. But my goal for the next 30 minutes or so is to show you three seemingly separate and distinct stories that actually build on each other and create an amazing picture of what faith looks like and what conviction looks like. But before diving in, I want to just give you a little bit of background information on the book of Daniel. All right, so, you know, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Well, Daniel is, is found in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is really a book of polarities, all right? The first half of the book, the first six chapters, and that's what we're going to look at. The first half of the book is really one of the more simple and straightforward books in the Bible. But the last half of the book was definitely one of the more complex and complicated books in the Bible outside of the book revelations. Why? What, what's going on with the second half? Well, Daniel becomes one of the greatest prophets uh, in all of scripture. And in the second half of his book, um, he begins giving a lot of prophecy about the end times. And, and he even gives a prophecy that many scholars believe pinpoints sort of the exact time that Jesus would be born. He talks about 70 weeks. You should look that up if that interests you, that kind of a thing. We're not going to talk about that today. But what about the timeline? Daniel? How does he kind of fall chronologically in order with what we've been doing so far? Well, Christina, who did a masterful job last week talking about Samson. Samson took place around 1200 BC, but today Daniel takes place around 600 BC. So we're talking about a six or 700 year gap. Now, one last thing before we get into the story. Theologians sort of classify the uh, first half of the book of Daniel, the, the half that we're looking at. They consider it to be uh, an essay on how the people of God should act in times of oppression. Now, 
in reality, they consider it to be a treatise, but Christina made me change the word treatise because she goes, I have no idea what that word means. And I explained to her what it means. And she goes, don't use that word. Just call it a treatise, just call it an essay. So I'm calling it an essay. It's not an essay, it's a treatise. But anyway, okay. <laughs> but I, I, I thought this was particularly interesting because we live in a time right now where the American church, if you will, is talking a lot about oppression. All right, we're not going to get into that probably ever, but the book of Daniel seeks to guide us on how believers who have spiritual convictions, how we're to respond when outside forces begin to encroach upon our beliefs. So with that in mind, let's kind of jump right into Daniel chapter one, verse one. It says this, now during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So Babylon at this time, the Babylonian Empire, is the most powerful empire in the world. And, and for us modern Americans, the Babylonian Empire was located in what is now kind of modern day Iraq. So this Babylonian Empire, this military power force comes out of Iraq, marches north, and besieges Jerusalem, located in Israel. And ne King Nebuchadnezzar, he, so he marches his army, and the scripture says that the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim and of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So let me just see if I understand what I'm reading here because it sounds like you're saying, right? It sounds like you're saying that God, like our God, not only permitted uh, a pagan nation to take sacred objects of his and put it into their temple, but he also gave this pagan nation victory over his people, the Jews. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's what, that's what he's saying. Now, this is hard for us as Christians to sort of grasp, but what this is is a picture of how God won't tolerate sin among his people. This right here is the end result of God's judgment. You see, for hundreds of years, God has been sending prophet after prophet into Israel, telling them that they need to repent, that they need to change their ways, they need to turn back to God, they need to stop worshiping idols, and they're not listening. Take a look at what one of the prophets, Habakkuk, says as describing the Jewish nation at this time. He says, wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there's no justice in the courts. Now, I don't know about you, but all weekend, I mean, honestly, even as I'm reading it right now, it is sh that sh shivers down my spine. See, here at DHC, one of the things that we learned when we learned about Rahab three weeks ago is that God is patient when it comes to sort of repentance of a nation, but Israel has reached their limit and judgment must now fall. So why am I spending sort of an inordinate amount of time on this part? Well, many Christians right now look at the current state of affairs of the world, if you will, and they firmly believe that God is judging us. 
Or, or, or if we don't, you know, um, turn back to him, if we don't kind of fix our ways, so to speak, that we will be judged. Now, I'm not a prophet, trust me, okay? And I will not presume to speak on behalf of God. I can't read his mind. I don't know when God will say, enough is enough. <laughs> enough is enough. But here's what I do know. Historically and scripturally, there is a precedent for God sending judgment on his people. And it ain't pretty. Now remember, judgment isn't punishment, okay? Jesus took our punishment, but judgment is correction, and correction still isn't fun. So what does this mean for us as Christians? It means we gotta pull together, okay? We gotta pull together, folks. We gotta remember that no matter who you are, where you live, if you are a Christian, we all ultimately serve the same God. Back to the story. It continues, Daniel 1.3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz. That's a great name. Kind of sounds like Rasmataz. Ash, sorry. Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families as well, who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So not only did God allow his temple to be raided, but he also allowed some Jewish boys to be captured. And then Nebuchadnezzar gives some guidelines as to which Jewish boys he wants chosen for his court. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Select only the strong and healthy, good-looking men, you know, studs. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. Essentially, give them an education. So Daniel and his buddies, they get chosen in this lot. And theologians believe at this point they're probably about 14 years old. And what's so interesting is that God wills that they receive a non-Jewish, secular, Babylonian education. Now, I just think this is an interesting discussion because there are many Christian parents out there who struggle with the idea of how to, how to educate their children. I mean, do, do we as Christians need to send our kids to a Christian school? Is it okay if we send our kids to a public school? Is it all right if we send our kids to a, you know, to, to a prep school? Well, so, uh, Scripture's silent on that, which means that it's up to you as parents to use your wisdom and your discretion as to how you want to raise and educate your children. But in this instance, God wills that these Jewish boys attend a top-notch elite Babylonian academy. And theologians tell us that at this Babylonian institution of education, these kids would be taught very different things from their Jewish beliefs. They would be taught a different creation story. Babylonians did not adhere to the story that was found in Genesis. They would have been educated in Babylonian pantheism, okay? Babylon, Babylonians believed in many gods, so pantheism. Um, they would have been exposed to a different standard of living and a different culture. In fact, while they were at Babylon prep, they were given new names. Scripture says that Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Now, here's a fun fact for your next cocktail hour. Um, these Hebrew names, so Daniel, Hananiah, okay, these Hebrew names all reference our God. But the Babylonian names, they all reference pagan gods. So for example, see Mishael here? Mishael means who is what God is. But his Babylonian name, Meshach, means who is what Aku is. And Aku is the Babylonian moon god. So 
imagine that these are your kids, right? Mishael's your son. You send him up to some elite Northeast liberal arts college, and he calls you in a month. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. Things are going well up here. Yeah, what are you studying? Well, I'm studying Babylonian culture, and oh, by the way, they changed my name. Okay, you'd panic. You'd panic. Parents, let me ask you a question. Do you worry about this? Honestly, is this a worry of yours? Do you fear that by sending your child out into the world that something's going to happen to them? That, that, that what is the world going to do to my child's faith? It's a concern for a lot of people. But here's a promise found in Scripture. Proverbs 22.6. It says, train up your child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. So what does that mean? It means that if you expose your children early on to the love and the teachings of Jesus Christ, if you make God the foundation of your home, that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord kind of a home, then you can have the confidence to know that God is with your child, that the Holy Spirit will guide your child no matter what environment they find themselves in. And Daniel's parents did this for him, and it allowed him to thrive in Babylon. But this is interesting. It says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. So for Daniel, it, it, was, it was, okay, you know what? The education, not a problem. The name, eh, whatever. But all of a sudden, he's being asked to do something that violates his convictions. That's not okay. And, and think about this. He's a thousand miles away from home. There's no parents. There's no rabbis. I mean, nobody would know if he ate the food. No big deal. But Daniel was raised to believe that as a Jewish boy, he was not supposed to eat food that had been sacrificed to another god. And that's what you've got here. See, Daniel's upbringing allowed him to engage in culture, but it gave him the wisdom and the discernment to know where to draw the line. So what did he do? It says that he asked the chief of staff for permission to not eat these unacceptable foods. I think that's so interesting. He asked permission. He didn't make demands. He didn't sort of cross his arms and stomp his feet. He didn't make some big production, some, you know, big cheddamone, as we would say, you know, in, in the Northeast Italian families. Rather, in a very polite, agreeable manner, he simply asked. Now, the chief of staff did not immediately allow him to do this. Because he was afraid, look, if, listen, if you, if you just eat vegetables, Daniel, because like, that's what you're saying you want to eat, if you just eat vegetables, I'm afraid you're going to become malnourished. And if you become malnourished, well, the king is going to kill me. And Daniel says, all right, look, test us. Give us like 10 days on this diet. And if we do well, will you let us continue? And, and he says, okay, fine, not a problem. I'll test you. Well, after 10 days, the boys looked better than everybody else, super healthy. And so because these guys remained faithful to God, he blessed them. After those three years of training were over, he blessed them with tremendous positions of authority within the Babylonian government. So a few years go by. Those boys, they become men. Very successful. They're doing their thing, minding their own business, when all of a sudden, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. Real nice. Set it up in the plain of Dura. So theologians tell us that he basically creates a statue that looks like himself. Um, and he invites the entire empire to the dedication of this statue. And he gives them some instructions. 
He looks over this huge crowd and he goes, all right, here's, here's what we're going to do. When the music plays, you know, the when the music plays, I want every single one of you to bow down and worship that statue. Oh, and by the way, if you don't bow down and worship that statue, I'm going to toss you into the fiery furnace over there. You see that one over there? Get that one over there. Eee, that's a problem. Okay? That's a little bit of a problem for our, for our Jewish friends. So let me tell you this quick story. And, and what's so interesting about this very famous story is that Daniel's not in it. But this story will impact his life later on when it comes to the old lion's den. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down to the statue. How could they? It goes against their convictions. They keep standing. And that drives the Babylonian officials crazy. And so the Babylonian officials, they go to the king. They get them all riled up. They say, hey, king, listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they pay no attention to you your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods. They do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Now, now the king is furious, right? So he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. goes, come here, let's go in here. And he gives him one last chance to worship the statue. He goes, if you worship that statue now, I will save you from death. But if you don't, into the fiery furnace you go. Imagine living in a world where someone says, I will execute you if you don't reject Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. What would you do? Sadly, that is happening in parts of this world. So what do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? Well, they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. I love that. If we are thrown into the furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, but even if he doesn't save us, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your God or worship the gold statue you have set up. Whoa. Wow. So what's the lesson for us as Christians right here? Does God have all the power in the world? Yes. Is God able to deliver us from all trials and tribulations and problems? Yes. Will he? Not always. Scripture tells us that God does allow trials into our lives in order to sort of shape our character or perhaps bring glory to him or, or many other reasons that we'll never know this side of heaven. And these kids right here, kids, they're bo- men at this time. These men have no idea if God will save them. He might. He might not. And even still, They stand up for their convictions and they remain faithful to God. 630 years later, Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid, meaning have respect for, have reverence for the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So this is what the men did. And it didn't go so well. Okay, didn't, didn't go that well because Nebuchadnezzar became so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage and he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Crank it up, boys. <laughs> I read that this week and it reminded me of that one scene from Spinal Tap. Remember that movie? Great movie. Okay, it's kind of like, listen, most furnaces, well, most furnaces go to 10, but where do you go from there? 
nowhere, right? This furnace goes to 11. So he's like, guards, crank this furnace up to 11. And he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. They're securely tied, it says, and they fell into the roaring flames. That's a problem. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his visors, hey, guys, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? And they're like, yeah, uh, you helped us. Why? Why are you asking? He goes, well, look, he shouted. I see four men unbound, walking around on the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. So not only, okay, not only are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego unharmed by the fire, but miraculously and unexplainably, there's a fourth person in there who looks like a god? What's going on here? Well, theologians believe that this fourth person is what is known as a Christophany, all right? That's a big word for um, an appearance in the Old Testament of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Every once in a while, it happens a couple of times, Jesus Christ appears in the Old Testament in this pre-incarnate form, and we believe that this is him right here. So the king hauls these men out, they're unharmed, and he says, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angels to rescue his servants who trusted him. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Well, wow. I mean, that is quite a statement for a pagan king. You see, this fiery ordeal, if you will, was meant to bring glory to God. And because of the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they stood for their convictions, it says that they were blessed by God with even greater opportunities to serve in that Babylonian kingdom. So time goes by. Let's call it about 50, 60 years. And that Babylonian empire, well, that fell. And a new empire took over, the Persian Empire. And in that new empire, it says that Daniel... We're back to him now. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. I mean, that's a big promotion. All right? Now, this didn't make Daniel very popular. Why? Well, the unfortunate reality of the world that we live in is that personal success rarely makes others joyful. So in that jealousy, it says that the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. I mean, basically, they wanted to get rid of him. And they knew. I mean, they knew he was a moral man of God. They knew he wasn't going to screw up. They knew he wasn't going to have some kind of moral failure that we read about in the news all the time. And so what do they do? They conclude. They say, well, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Let's pause here. So at this point, Daniel is an old man. He's about 85 years old. I, I think we forget how old he is at this point in the story. And clearly, based on the testimony of these other men, Daniel has remained openly faithful to God in the midst of this pagan nation. The stories of his past must be well known. I mean, these men clearly know that when he was young, he didn't eat the food that had been sacrificed to other gods. They, he knows that their, their friends didn't bow down to that statue 
And now they're going to use that against him. So they come up with a plan. And they go to the king with the plan. And they say, we are all in agreement that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. So just like the food that was sacrificed to other gods, just like the statue, this is a problem, okay? Because this sort of smacks right into Daniel's convictions. So how does he handle it? What does he do? Well, it says, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, knelt down as usual in his upstairs room and with its windows open towards Jerusalem, prayed three times, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. You see, in spite of the law that was trying to prevent him from praying to his God, he didn't change a thing, nor did he hide his behavior, because Daniel was a man of conviction and courage in spite of the consequences. So these Persian officials who tried to trap him, they see him doing this. And they report back to the king. They go, king, that man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah? Yeah. Uh, he's ignoring you and your law, and he still prays to his God three times a day. Now hearing this, the king was deeply troubled. And he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. Now I think that's really interesting. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. And in the evening of that night, that day, pardon me, in the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your Majesty, you know that no law that the king signs can be changed. You see, these men forced this king to create a law in such a way that he was legally forced. His hands were tied. He must throw Daniel into the lion's den. So, at last, it says, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, may your God, whom you serve faithfully, rescue you. Okay. What we're about to read next is perhaps one of the most famous scenes in the entire Bible, Daniel and the lion's den. I want to show you this story in a way that perhaps you've never seen it before. And I want to show it to you in a way that you'll never forget. So, ready? Daniel's thrown to the lion's den. And it says that a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Let's stop here because I got to show you this because this is so amazing. I don't want to lose you. We're almost done, but you've got to see this. So all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, God continually orchestrates patterns in people's lives to prepare us for the coming Messiah prepping the soil, if you will, for what we will see Jesus do and go through. Now, one of the most amazing patterns that God uses all throughout the Old Testament is the pattern that is known as the resurrection on the third day. Now, to remind you, Jesus, okay, died on Good Friday. 
Saturday, the second day, he spent it in the grave. And on the morning of the third day, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave. He was resurrected and he conquered death. Now, theologians believe, and I firmly believe that Daniel in the lion's den was orchestrated to prepare our hearts to see that death could be conquered and it would happen on the third day with Jesus Christ. Let me show you this because once you see it, you'll never forget it. Are you ready? Day one, it's called Daniel prays and death. So Daniel prays, right? As soon as he hears about the law, he prays. He is effectively signing his own death warrant. He is as good as dead according to that law. Scripture says he prayed three times that day, morning, noon, and night. That's day one. Day two, the king looks to acquit. In the morning, the officials rush over. They charge Daniel to pray to some other god. The king, it says, um, spends the rest of the day looking to acquit him. And in the evening, remember, in the evening it said that the officials remind him that he is bound by this law. And so at the end of the second day, Daniel is placed inside the lion's den. And what happens next? Remember, be thinking about Jesus and Easter. It says that a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, just like a stone was rolled across Jesus' tomb. It says the king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Just like Pilate, sealed the tomb of Jesus with his seal so that Jesus's body could not be stolen. Wow. So Daniel is now sealed inside this veritable tomb with the lions. And he's there all night. Day three, Daniel's lifted from the den. It says very early in the next morning, day three, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angels to shut the lions' mouths so they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight without sin. And I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted his God. So Daniel had been sent to his death. He had been placed in a tomb, so to speak, and now he was lifted out alive on the third day. You think that's an accident? Honestly, you think that's just some big coincidence? But this is just one of many examples in the Old Testament that is trying to prepare the hearts of the Jewish people for what they would see with the coming Messiah. It is an incredible story. Daniel led an incredible life. And we look at his life and his story to help inform us about our convictions. We've said this word a lot today, convictions. What does it mean? Well, here at DHC, we define conviction simply as something that we believe to be true that we will stand by. Daniel, in this story, is dealing with 
Just huge, massive, macro-level convictions. You know, something as Americans that I pray that we'll never have to deal with. But all of us have convictions. We have convictions about things that we probably don't even realize. I mean, some of you, you know, uh, strictly adhere to specific diets. I have convictions, okay? I have a conviction about the restaurant Houston's, okay? I will never, ever, okay? I will never order a Diet Coke at Houston's. You know why? Because they charge for refills. And I will not pay for refills of soda. They should be free, okay? And that's a hill that I'll die on, okay? <laughs> but let's get serious here for a second, all right? How are we doing in the spiritual conviction department, honestly? Because we live in a country that doesn't exactly celebrate what I'll call Christian principles and Christian ethics. But as followers of Jesus Christ, that's, that's what we're called to have. And I firmly believe that the story of Daniel gives us the courage to stand up for these beliefs. So let's wrap up by talking about the practical, right? What's the practical? How do, we, how do we apply these things? If it's your first time watching Downton Harbor Church, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and, and just know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So with everything that we've heard today, let me ask you just a couple of questions to get you thinking this week. So here's the first question. What convictions are you not willing to come? What are those areas in your life where you sort of put your feet into the sand and you go, I'm not budging on this. Uh, maybe for you, it's remaining faithful in your marriage. Maybe for you, it's, it's maintaining financial integrity. Students out there, okay? Listen, let me tell you something. You are tested more than any adult will ever be. Maybe for you, it's a commitment to not drink underage. Maybe for you, it's a commitment to not cheat on a test. I, I, I don't know what it is. It's different for all of us. Now, here's the thing. Having a conviction is one thing. It's great to say I have convictions. It's great to say I'll never do that. But as the great theologian Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Okay? So let me, let me, let me put it to you this way. Do you have the courage to stand for your convictions when facing threatening circumstances? threatening consequences because in this life let me tell you something in this life there's gonna come a time when your convictions put a target on your back your boss might ask you to push the line ethically and if you refuse well you might lose your job and you need that job you need that paycheck students out there maybe you see your friends doing things that you know you shouldn't do it. I mean, you know this is not what your parents want for you. But if you say no, you might lose your friends. I want you right now to think about all of the potential consequences that could occur from doing the right thing. Loss of a job, yeah. You could lose friends, absolutely. You will definitely get criticized at some point. You will certainly be ridiculed, yes. But let's get real for a second. Are there any consequences that God cannot handle? I mean, seriously, folks, are there any consequences in this world that God can't handle you? Because if God has challenged you to do the right thing and you honor God by doing the right thing, you think he's going to hang you out to dry? Honestly, do you think that if you lose your job because you did the right thing, 
Do you think if you lose a friend because you did the right thing, that God doesn't have some greater plan or greater blessing in store for those who remain faithful to him and his principles? Come on. I believe, I firmly believe, that the story of Daniel teaches us a promise that standing up for your convictions will end up being a blessing, perhaps the greatest blessing in your life. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that you have preserved the story of Daniel for some 2,600 years. And one of the things, Lord, that we learn from this story is that as Christians, we got to stand up for what we believe in. You've asked us to live in a certain way, Lord, and we live in a world that challenges those beliefs, that challenges those convictions at every turn. Lord, it is such a temptation. And every single one of us, I know it because they're human, I'm human. Every single one of us faces a temptation. Every single one of us has our convictions challenged daily, perhaps more now than ever. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give every single person here at Downtown Harbor Church to stand up for what's right, to do what you've called them to do, Lord, and that you would bless them and keep them safe in the process. And that you, Lord, would be glorified through it all. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.